0: Hello, and welcome to Conference Room C, where the culture meets. I'm your host, Dr. A, and today we'll discuss leading while Black. Holding a formal leadership position in an organization is not for the faint at heart. You're responsible for developing others, and in a lot of ways, you have their careers in your hands. You're also responsible to the organization. Depending on what level of leadership you are, you may be held accountable for achieving high priority goals goals directing operations, or determining the strategic direction of an organization. You're likely having to always manage up, down, and to the side, keeping your supervisors satisfied, working with your employees, and building relationships with your counterparts. Being a leader can be rewarding, like when you see your employees excel under your leadership or when you receive accolades from the top. But the other side of leadership can be draining stressful and a bit lonely. Now imagine being a leader and having to navigate all that I just described, but also worry about systemic discrimination, bias and racism, double jeopardy, which basically means people who face discrimination because they hold multiple marginalized identities, microaggressions, countering negative stereotypes, and feeling like you're under a microscope. This is the experience of many black leaders So it may come as no surprise that there is a glaring disparity in the ranks of leadership across industries and sectors. As of October, 2019, there were only four black CEOs at Fortune 500 companies. And this number has actually decreased over the last decade or so. Last time I checked, none of them were women. This trend is not just in large for-profit corporations either. Current research suggests similar disparities in nonprofit leadership and in the federal government sector as well. Could the marginalizing experiences that black folks face as they ascend to positions of leadership be causing many of them to quit the race before making it to the top? That could indeed be part of the reason for the disparity we see. Another reason could be that in general, organizations are not truly dedicated to promoting black employees to the highest ranks. We really have to question, how much has the institution changed if at any given time, there are less than 10 black CEOs out of hundreds. Recently, at an event addressing a group of CEOs, Otha T. Spriggs, president and CEO of the Executive Leadership Council said to the crowd, there are qualified and overqualified black managers who can fill these leadership positions. This is not a talent issue, but an access issue. I would have to agree. And I would add on top of that, that it's also a retention issue. The stress and feelings of isolation that can accompany being one of a few or the only one at the highest ranks of an organization would be enough for any leader to cut their tenure short. Not to mention the pressure of serving as a representative for an entire group of people, which can come with an undeniably overwhelming feeling of not being able to make even the smallest of mistakes. So what's the path forward? How can we get more Black employees in top spots? And what are the must-knows for those aspiring leaders out there? Here to discuss are three dynamic leaders who I'm sure have unique perspectives on this topic because of their very different paths. First, we have Alethea O'Hara-Stevenson. Alethea holds a Bachelor of Arts and Political Science from York University, a chartered insurance professional designation from the Insurance Institute of Canada, and a Master of Business Administration and Leadership and Innovation from Edinburgh Napier University. She has over 20 years of experience in the financial services industry and over 10 years of leadership experience. Alethea is also a former political candidate for school board trustee and a community leader who is passionate about advocating for families and standing up for our youth. Alethea has delivered keynotes on leadership and education as well as lectured on leadership, ethics, and employee engagement. Alethea, so glad you can join us in the conference room, all the way from my favorite country up north, Canada. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Next, we have Christopher Talley. Chris received his Bachelor's of Science from the Penn State College of Human and Health Development, majoring in hospitality management. He started his 10-year corporate career in North Jersey as an assistant food service director. Over the course of his 10 years with the company, he has held many roles and positions, with his largest scope of responsibility being director of operators for the Trenton Public Schools Food Service Program and program manager for the U.S. Contingent Staffing Program. During the past three years, Chris has been able to open several businesses, the main being a family-owned investment holding company named Tally Investment Group, and his own consultant company named CPT Consulting. Excited to have you, Chris. How are you feeling today?
1: Feeling great. I'm happy to be here, excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Last but certainly not least, we have Alex D. Trimble Jr. AKA the Federal Career Coach. Alex received his bachelor's degree in sociology and psychology from William Penn University and his master's degree in industrial and organizational psychology from University of Baltimore. He is also a certified career and leadership development coach, professional speaker, and author of the best-selling books, Reaching Senior Leadership, 10 Growth Strategies Every Government Leader Should Know, which I wrote a chapter in, just have to shout out Alex and myself, (laughs) and also the book, The GPS Guide to Success. Alex has over 10 years of experience coaching and advising federal government senior leaders and began his career Managing three government wide executive leadership development programs and several executive mentoring programs at a cabinet level agency. Alex, how are you today? Thank you for stepping into the conference room.
2: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I'm looking forward to this very lively conversation.
0: Awesome. So I'm just going to jump right in because I already know what I'm working with today. Like you said, it's going to be a lively conversation. I thought it would be a great idea to just open it up with some personal stories about all of your journeys and leadership. So have any point in your career, have you felt like you had a negative experience or interaction because of your race? And if so, how did you respond?
3: Wow, I think I'll start with that one, Amina. As you mentioned from my bio, I have a number of years of experience and I think the most negative experience that stood out for me I was leading a group of individuals and working on a project, and I'm going to be very vague in my description so as not to give away too many too much detail. Mm-hmm. The project that I was working on required a lot of input from various individuals, and it was for a good cause. I had some individuals, part of my team, who decided to take it to the next level and add another element to this project, and it was fine. It was well-intended. The end result was that a senior leader who saw the project commented about the initiative, saying that what I did was uncivilized and uncultured. A more specific word was used, but I won't won't reveal that specific word. But essentially, that was what it meant. There wasn't any question as to why this initiative was brought forward. No question as to who created it, what was the purpose. But I knew that it was well intended. And at this time, there was nothing much that I could do other than thank you for your feedback. I appreciate your feedback and moved on. Internally, I was furious. I was upset. I was heartbroken, but I could not let that show on the outside. After the conversation, of course, you know, I had my moment of breakdown and I consulted my peers and my husband and, you know, asked for advice. And it was, you know, escalated and, you know, don't sit there and take that. And, a number of other things that, you know, was recommended that I should have done. I did not action it any further. I said, you know what, I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to continue to look at the bigger cause. The group of individuals that I was leading heavily relied on me. So I didn't want to leave them. So I continued the course and I continued to prove myself. And I just let that individual continue down their path. In hindsight, I probably should have done something about it, but I had to look at the bigger picture.
0: Alethea, thank you for sharing. And a couple of things you said really stood out to me and hit home for me especially when you talked about internalizing your frustration. I just feel like that's so common when we have these interactions in the workplace and we consider that perhaps if it was someone else having the interaction then the same words wouldn't have been used. I think you said something like uncivilized and uncultured. Exactly. And in my study of black women executives for my dissertation There was always a tinge of regret for maybe not having done more just to make things a little, you know, if you do speak up, you could possibly make things a little easier for those who come behind you. But I'm always a proponent of taking care of yourself in the moment. And, you know, we have so much weight on us as it is. Sometimes we really have to do what we have to do in that moment. Mm -hmm. And like you said, just keep moving forward. So I appreciate you sharing. Fellas, did one of you want to jump in?
2: This is Alex. I can share a story, and not to get too heavy too quickly, but I've hey, been blessed.
1: That's what we're here for. This is the conference room. It's the place for that. Get heavy, Alex.
2: <laughs> I have been blessed throughout my career to have worked for a number of wonderful leaders who I've been able to have race-based conversations with so I can kind of share what it is and what it feels like to be an African-American male, especially me being a bigger African-American male who can be fair. A lot of people probably understand where I'm coming from. However, there was an individual earlier on in my career who was a senior leader, who I had worked for, and who had began my career as a mentor, actually. And one day, I told her a story about what happened to me in college when, long story short, me and some of my fraternity brothers were out in the parking lot. A fight almost broke out with some people who were across the parking lot. It didn't happen. Everyone left. But the police were called. So the police came. and We were sitting out in the car. He said, hey, can you come? And just tell us what happened. We're like, oh, sure, sure. So we all walked over to the police car, and then they told us to put our hands in the hood. And we're like, uh, why? And I said, put your hands in the hood. And, you know, my friends are also big and bigger individuals than I, and they're very frustrated. Why are we put our hands in the hood? Then weapons got drawn. The highway patrol got called. These zoomed in, and things got escalated very quickly. There's a lot of details to that story. Including, you know, people crying, you know, weapons being actually pointed at people. It was a very traumatic time to be, you know, a college student. And it left an impression on me. That's why I'm, I've been always such a proponent of diversity because that shouldn't have to happen to anyone. You know, we hadn't done anything wrong, yet we were being accused of being criminals. On top of that, there was these bunch of white kids, as they were, on the hill laughing at us as all this stuff was happening. So it was a really traumatic experience for us. And so I shared this story with my supervisor, that specific supervisor at that time, and I got into much more details of what was happening. Some bad stuff happened. And once I finished the story, the first thing she said was, well, what were you wearing? Oh, my. That was the first day I realized that though she thought she was a mentor and she had helped me so much in my career, she didn't understand me. And because she didn't understand me or what I've had to go through, she was not gonna comprehend certain aspects of me. It was that day where I started to trust her less and I started picking up on some of the other things she had been doing that were again, she helped me out so much, but she was also doing these little things that were, oh, he's the black guy. Let me let me help this black guy. Again, I didn't realize it at first until that first time when she said that I saw how she viewed me.
0: And I mean, you bring up such an important point, Alex, and we're actually going to get into um, sponsorship a little later in the episode. But I just think for young Black professionals, it's so important to be able to identify a mentor that can understand or is willing to try to understand some of the microaggressions and stereotyping and things that we go through. Now, I'm never one to say that, you know, just because I'm a young black professional, I have to have an older black professional as my only mentor. I believe in having a diverse set of influences, but no matter what color your mentor or sponsor, it's just very important that they not necessarily can relate to because they won't be able to, most likely, if they're not a person of color, it'll be harder for them to relate to your experiences, but just that willingness to try to understand. I mean, how horrible is it that she basically was trying to blame you for a traumatic experience
1: that you just disclosed to her? Chris, what do you think about this? I appreciate Alethea and Alex, both of you guys sharing. You got me connecting over here. I feel like (laughs) we've been in similar situations, but in different environments. Very similar stories. I'll just quickly add one before we transition to the next question. Actually, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, employee resource groups, ERGs. Pretty much the way corporate America tries to make sure diversity and inclusion is at the forefront. I'm a big advocate of ERGs. I um, had the opportunity to actually create three different ones at my previous employer. And my story comes in with the fourth. The fourth just happened to be a group of really just African Americans, folks that were mixed, but most of it from the African descent, African uh, diaspora kind of bloodline to come together and say, listen, you know, to your point of this podcast. How do we create a safe space for us, minorities, blacks, and executives in corporate America to feel safe, to talk about our issues and, and really escalate problems that matter to us? So I was tasked by the actual diversity and inclusion department, the senior vice president, to help lead the starting and creation of this ERG. This individual was a minority. She was a female. She wasn't black, but she was a minority. And let's say, you know, and it's interesting, I would love to talk to you more offline, I mean, about your dissertation with minority women in executive roles, I'd be interested to see what she felt and what she would say because she was viewed as one of the executives who did not look out for her people for (laughs) lack of politically correct words. And so we knew that reputation of her, but you know, she faked the funk, she smiled in our faces, she bought us lunch during our meetings and everything was going well. Eventually somebody reported that Chris Talley was trying to start a racially charged affinity group. Now, mind you, I told you D&I was the one that tasked me with kind of leading this project. We have had several meetings. Everything's documented. Folks that are doing, you know, the work are actually putting work in. And for me to be singled out and targeted, pretty much I got an email from this vice president, no face-to-face conversation, no phone call, nothing. Now, mind you, I've had a relationship with her, worked with her for the past four years. And she sends me an email just pretty much reaming me out, calling me. Michael Max, Marcus Garvey, pretty much, in the corporate world, and with a negative taint on it. Your question was, how did I respond? And immediately, I'll be honest, I probably felt a lot how Alex and his friends felt during their situation. You know, I wanted to yell. I wanted to scream. I wanted to cry. I wanted to quit. I wanted to march up to the 31st floor and print out this email and cause a funk. But I said, you know what? How do I counter this in a more professional way where I can learn and actually talk eventually about it? And here we are almost two years later, (laughs) I'm telling (laughs) the story. And, you know, I mean, I simply responded to her with the facts. I copied every single meeting notes, every single meeting agenda, every single meeting invite, pretty much outlined and disputed every point she made in the email. Guess what happened after that? No response, not one follow-up. I even personally requested her to come and sit and meet with her so we could further review, no follow-up, nothing. So I escalated above her, and I backed out of all diversity and inclusion activities. At that point, it didn't feel safe. The director of diversity and inclusion was actually a white woman, so it was already tension. She didn't really understand how to deal or speak with the folks that were in diversity and inclusion, so I just removed myself. Unfortunately, you know that did take a hit, I would say, to my brand and reputation in the corporate world by stepping away from those involvement. But I didn't feel safe, to be honest. And that was the beginning of the end of my corporate experience. I just couldn't take it much longer after that. So I'll end it on that story. I got several more. Well, Chris,
0: <laughs> you just said a lot there. And I just have two things to say. Kudos to you for mastering the corporate clapback.
1: back. <laughs> yes,
0: and also, on a more serious note, when one begins to identify or label an ERG as racially charged, it's an indication that that organization wasn't ready to have an ERG. So with that, let's move on to the next question. So some argue that, in general, there is not a pipeline of Black leaders to move into executive positions. I think there's enough research and data out there to prove otherwise. But this is still some people's argument. So we're going to pretend for a second that this could be true. And it can be maybe in some industries, for instance, STEM, Where minorities are still underrepresented, it could be possible that maybe there's not this pipeline of black managers to move into these positions. So, if this is true, what can organizations do to correct this?
3: You want to start off, Alethea? Sure, I'll have to start off by saying that I disagree. I think there is a great deal of talented black individuals who are more than qualified to move into executive or even senior leadership positions. What organizations need to do. They need to do more than just talk about diversity and and inclusion. I think organizations need to get uncomfortable. Much like what Chris experienced, organizations need to face that head on and talk about uncomfortable situations. I feel like today there is more talk about inclusion and inclusion around, I guess, other things, but race is being left behind. So I think organizations need to continue to make sure that race is at the forefront and simply get uncomfortable. We have a number of talented employees that are out there, but we also need to have white leaders who are willing to face the challenge head on and tackle those uncomfortable conversations. Make the workplace safe where all employees can have those frank conversations, where black employees feel safe and empowered to be able to speak their truth. It is important when an individual is able to come to work and bring their true self to work. And if the environment is not safe for that, then it's going to impact not just the performance of the organization the employee's performance, they'll end up having burnout or they will end end up leaving. So it is definitely important to have that safe space where all employees, especially Black employees, can feel safe to be able to speak up and share their challenges. In terms of Black support, the limited leaders need to be brave and step up and support young leaders. They're in a great position of power, and with that power, they should be able to impact and influence change. And I find in today's society, with my experience, the limited Black leaders that are there, once they get to a certain level, they go with the flow. Once they reach that C-suite, they feel they have made it, and they now have to toe the line. They don't advocate for their community anymore. And that is unfortunate. And I think it has multiple effects. You know, when a senior Black leader starts to toe the line, then others are going to look at them and wonder, well, if John or Tom is not supporting their Black community, then why should anyone else? So from that perspective, yes, you know, Black leaders need to step up. And yes, they have a lot of pressure, but they also need to step up and they're in a position of power and leadership for a reason. They need to act on
2: it.
0: You dropped a lot of gems, Alethea, from organizations being uncomfortable to Black employees needing to feel like they can bring their true self to work, to when Black individuals do get into the leadership kind of towing the line. I love that analogy. And we're actually going to get into that a little later in the episode, because there's a question I keep getting over and over from people who know about the podcast. What else can organizations
1: do? I'll jump in real quick, mean. So this was my specialty, I would say, when it came to corporate before I left, was recruitment, talent evaluation, fast tracking, You know, really identifying folks for a pipeline to the executive world. I'll be honest with you, the biggest issue I saw in corporate America, being around the HR world for about five years in a Fortune 200 setting, it was the recruitment, placement, and training. That, in my opinion, stopped a lot of well, let's say, groomed, whether education or just experience wise, or just have ambition or hard work ethic. It stopped those black leaders from growing. Alethea made a point about being burnt out and really worn down. And that's a lot of times what they do. They find these ambitious, go getting young minority workers and they put them in environments and situations where it's not conducive for promotions or training and learning that will get you to the next level as far as going through the ranks. So I think corporations really got to take a strong look on how and where are they recruiting minorities? Where are they placing them at in their first couple of years, right? And then the training that they're receiving. I think that's one thing that corporations need to focus on because there are talented young folks ready for the executive world. But to Alithia's point, I don't know if the space is ready for them or the folks there are ready for them as well. So it needs to start at the bottom.
0: I love that, Chris. I'm learning so much so far in this conversation. So I'm just going to let Alex jump in before I say anything further.
2: (laughs) So I want to agree with both my other panelists. You guys are spot on it and we're all in the line with what we're thinking. And I just want to really quickly talk about a story. Years back, I was facilitating a course on diversity and it was a very intense course. It's a Franklin Covey course. And I think four days into the five-day training, one of the senior leaders stood up and said, you're right, diversity is critical, it's important. I have some positions open right now. I'm gonna get on the phone and call my hiring managers and tell them we are going to hire someone from a diverse background. I don't care if they're qualified or not, we're gonna hire some diverse people. And we were like, no, 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 no. That's not what we're saying. You of course, completely disagree with the premise. The premise that there's not qualified diverse individuals out there, there's not qualified African-Americans out there, is a falsehood. It just means like what Chris was saying is you're not being strategic in your recruiting. Or on top of that, maybe you're not compensating the position as it should be compensated. And, you know, to be completely honest, because diversity is such a big thing nowadays, there's more competition. So a company just can't get by by paying pennies for an African-American individual who is a high flyer. They're going to be sought after. Then I want to kind of get to your point in regards to, I guess, implicit bias. There's a very interesting study. I think it's called Written in Black and White. It's a very interesting story. I'm not sure if you've heard it, but the long story short was they wrote a report, a legal report, very well-written legal report, which they shared with partners of law firms all across the country. The same exact report. They gave one a white name. They gave one a black name. They, hey, this person's black. This person's white. I had great credentials, both of them. Just the name and the greatness was different. They intentionally put, it was like 22 errors in the report. Seven of those errors were grammatical and spelling errors. What they found was that the report that had the white sounding name and was told to be white, the reviewers, these law firm top lawyers, partners, only actually found on average two or three of those errors, about well, three of those errors of the report that was supposedly written by the black person, they found on average six of the errors. Mm -hmm. That means that, again, there is this implicit bias that even when we think that we're not biased towards other people, we really are. Because again, in this study, it showed that the comments were actually what's really interesting is, again, these are the same exact report on the white report. They said this person has a lot of potential. They're going to go places in life. These are quotes. In the, black, in the Black Report, one actually said, one fine actually said, I can't believe he graduated from such and such college. I'm a, again, same exact thing. So when you're asking the question, are there African-Americans in the pipeline? I believe there are, but I think there is implicit bias. And so, one, leaders are choosing to, maybe unconscious, but they're choosing to rate or knock down the Black talent at a higher rate than they would their white counterparts. And on the second end, at the same time, you're just maybe not giving them those chances. You're not putting the right trainings and so on and so forth. I had to share that, but then I have to somewhat not disagree with the premise of the question, but my expertise lies in political savvy and influence. So I, I teach my clients how to build relationships, how to influence individuals, and then how to position yourself for the job and decisions that you want to happen. And so I always tell people, You know, if the organization doesn't do what they need to do to promote you, go. At the end of the day, I refuse to allow any organization to hamper my future and what I'm going to be able to provide for my family. And so if my organization is not doing what it needs to be doing to promote me, I'm looking elsewhere. And so that's what I always recommend to my clients as well is there is so many opportunities to self-teach nowadays, whether it's YouTube, whether it's the book that you and I wrote together at Reaching Senior Leadership. There's podcasts. There's just so much out there that you can grow yourself and then you can network and find something else that's even better. I don't want people to rely on their organization because at the end of the day, the organization has a budget and they're going to do what's the best. I hear you, Alan.
0: And I apologize you because I'm starting to feel like, you know, I'm in church on a Sunday, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you were on a roll. In that same vein, I do want to shout out this book I've been listening to called Bias. By Jennifer Eberhardt. I believe she's a researcher at Stanford. Just really interesting book. She shares a lot of her research just on how these biases are unconsciously formed in our brain over time from the time we're children. So, moving forward, I do want to get to this question, and we've alluded to it a little bit so far in the conversation. So, there's this idea of a glass cliff for. Black leaders, and this is the idea that black leaders have to work extra hard to minimize their mistakes as leaders, because once they've made a mistake, the penalty for their mistake will be much worse than for someone of the dominant culture made the same mistake.
1: True or false? True. True. (laughs) Okay, is this a vote? Does anyone want to elaborate? I'll just go quickly. I really think the damage comes from when. It affects your reputation. So, like, if a majority, Caucasian male or female, makes a mistake, their reputation isn't tainted. It doesn't affect their ability to get that promotion or be called still in that room, that round table where, hey, these are only for our top performers. If you are a minority, unfortunately, you know, you do have that chip on your shoulder where you are trying to go above and beyond. You're working from eight to seven and even if you do all of that, you make one mistake, they look at you as, you know, competent, you know, or just not
2: ready for that next step. Yeah, I definitely think it's true. And I agree wholeheartedly with Chris. I teach about having a political defense. The reality is all of us at some point are going to make a mistake. And yes, for us, that mistake can be much more harmful than what our counterparts. So how do you position yourself? How do you plan and buffer so when those things do happen? your reputation isn't just demolished. So what key individuals within your organization do you need to build relationships with so they're going to back you up if something does go down? Like, this being very intentional about that. Alethea,
3: what say you? What was your vote? True. Absolutely. There is no doubt about it. If a Black employee makes a mistake, absolutely, you're going to be crucified. So there is no second chance. There is no recovery from it. So you always have to work that much harder. You always have to make sure that, you know, your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed because you don't have the opportunity for a second chance.
0: Just hearing everyone's answers, it's just disheartening but at the same time it's comforting, you know, that we can all have these collective experiences. And actually, I think it's the second episode of this season of Conference Room C, we're going to be talking with a DNI expert and a mental health clinician about just some of the things that, Young Black professionals go through in the workplace and how it can take a toll on their mental health. Now, let me preface this y'all got a lot of energy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna ask this question. I need your 30 second elevator pitch. Pretend like you're talking to a young Black professional. Think Gen Xer, Millennial, Centennial, also known as Gen Z. How can this person who's an aspiring leader in an organization identify? and connect with mentors and or sponsors. 30
3: second elevator pitch, who's ready to go first? Oh my gosh, I'll go first. Alex is probably gonna disagree with me on this one, but my one advice is dress for success. You can be comfortable in today's work environment. You can show up at work as comfortable as you wanna be, but never, ever, ever should you go into the workplace with club wear. And I think that paints a very clear picture. Even if it's a comfortable environment, people will want to take you seriously. So you need to dress for success. Secondly, you need to be able to get uncomfortable, step out of your comfort zone and approach a stranger and connect with them. You can simply start with, you know, I am nervous or I am new or, you know, just something to break the ice, but step out of your comfort zone, get uncomfortable. That's how you're able to make those connections. I think you asked for one nugget and I gave you two.
0: Now, Alethea, we have to stick to a time frame with this episode, but I'm going to (laughs) have you back on when we talk about dressing and everything in the workplace, so don't you worry.
2: Who's next? Did I hear Alex? I'll go. I'm not sure why you think I would disagree with you on that, but (laughs) 30 seconds, I would say, ask the question. The reality is, most people are afraid to go to someone who's influential and just ask, hey, can I have a 15-minute conversation with Kevin? 30-minute conversation. Can I I learn from you? Most people are actually afraid to do it. So statistically speaking, you have a higher chance of connecting with that person because everyone else is afraid of doing it. And I can't tell you how many people having very senior level government leaders, private sector leaders, and politicians I've met and being mentored from because I was willing to go ask the question, can I learn from you?
1: I like that. I like that. Chris, you're up. All right, 30-second spill. I would definitely, you know, echo the two comments before, but I would say do not be afraid to be yourself. You need to be present, be in the moment, speak your mind. If it makes others uncomfortable or you feel yourself uncomfortable, it might allow you to position yourself differently quicker and maybe make less mistakes career-wise. But never be afraid to be yourself. Don't be unapologetic. Let it go. Speak up. Ask those questions. Push yourself outside the comfort zone and get a mentor that doesn't look like you. It's always good to get that diversity. I guarantee you, Alex and Alethea would say, we wouldn't have some of these insights if we didn't speak to other races and other genders. So definitely push yourself to get somebody that does not look like you. I agree too.
0: I agree too. And I know y'all didn't ask me, but my 30 seconds would be, definitely don't be afraid to use your voice. You know, I think, as Alethea alluded to earlier, we get in these positions sometimes and we forget the sacrifices that were made for us to even be able to have these opportunities. And I was in a situation recently where someone pretty much made it seem like they did me a favor by giving me a certain opportunity. And I had to kindly let them know that I'm overqualified for the opportunity you gave me. And I make you look good by doing this. While I'm always grateful. You know, I'm a faithful person. So I appreciate my opportunities. We can't let people walk all over us or try to control us with this dominant narrative. We can't let them tell us how we should act about certain things. And that goes for any spaces, including the workspace. Now, I have one I last. 30 question. seconds. Okay. Well, it's <laughs> my show, Alex. <laughs> I'm just saying, I have one last question before we get to the Dear Dr. A. And I'm asking this because my friends will not let me live if I didn't ask this question. Since announcing the launch of Conference Room C, a number of people have asked me to explore the possible differences between being a young Black professional and having a supervisor who is also Black versus having a supervisor who is not Black. I'm sure you all know where this is going. In your experience, what are some of the differences you've seen with the dynamic of being a Black professional and having a supervisor who is also Black?
3: Wow, that's an interesting question. I've had limited Black, I'll say leaders in my career, both inside of an organization and outside. And I find that the limited Black leaders, they tend to expect more from you. They tend to push you a lot more, but those same leaders are the ones that see your true potential and they will tend to elevate you and push you to get to that next level. Don't get me wrong. I have peers who have had not the same experience. You know, they've had leaders, Black leaders, who simply are looking out for themselves and they don't support. So my experience is very different. On the other hand, I've had some non-Black leaders who have been very supportive, some who have been mentors. I have yet to have a non-Black sponsor, but I've had non-Black leaders who are there to elevate you and push you. Oftentimes, they are surprised by your qualifications. They're surprised by your accomplishments. And when you accomplish something, there is that surprise element there. But you will find the odd ones that will be there to prop you up and advocate on your behalf. In my career as well, there have been leaders who recognize that there are certain biases that exist, but they can't do anything about it or they don't do anything about it, whether that's because they don't have the impact and influence to make change or they simply don't know how to proceed about making those changes. So, again, I've had a lot of experience and, you know, a lot of different leaders over the years, both inside of the organization and outside that. It's a nice balance.
0: Thank you, Alethea, for making this distinction. I'll just touch on it quickly of a sponsor versus a leader or a mentor. So mm-hmm. you, know, you can have a leader who provides informal guidance, you know, advice, career advice, whatnot. But a sponsor is really that person in organization that's going to put themselves on the line for you. They're going to leverage their social capital and social networks within the workspace on your behalf to help you get further in your career. So having those sponsors are key. Absolutely. Um, and really thinking about doing a whole episode on that, it's so important. All right, fellas, what
1: you got? Going, Chris. Alex, appreciate it. I'll jump in really quickly. I really think, and I'll take my experience, but when it comes to dealing with that manager, supervisor, or whatever level it is, I think you really have to understand the background of that manager. Us black folks, we deal with a lot of generational curses. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they do come off in a workplace, and especially if you're in a position of power or leadership, a lot of those, let's say, bad habits trickle down onto the employees. For example, my experience, I've had the most success working with black men as a superior, but I've had unfortunate issues where professional lines get blurry very quickly with black males as superiors. I've had the least amount of success with black women as my superior. And I'll be honest, in my experience, it was a lot of unrealistic expectations put on me that I felt as though I'm targeted a little bit, not sure why. And honestly, Amina, the most success I've actually had was working underneath a white male as far as just opportunity, chances, experiences, for whatever reason, it was always like I had to go that extra mile, right? Go put that little extra work in just to prove myself to my fellow Black leader versus when I thought, hey, this should be an opportunity for me to show myself and get that advantage because you do understand who I am and where I come from. That's kind of how I would answer that.
0: And that's just what it is. You just said everything right there with your statement. And I've had unfortunate experiences when I've had Black women as leaders I wish I had had better experiences. I really like what you said, Chris, about people bringing themselves to the workspace because we're all human at the end of the day. I just wish that us having, I'm not going to say we all have the same generational curses that we're dealing with, but there are some common ones that circulate in our culture, and our community. So I just wish that we could all bond over moving past those instead of letting them have a negative effect on our interactions, especially with those we have to spend more than 40 hours a week with. Alex, I didn't forget about you. What
2: say you? Oh, no, not to worry. Chris's comments made me think about the why. I've been blessed in that. I think I've had good supervisors, great supervisors who are both Black and non-Black. Each of them have been different, and they've been different, but I think they've all been really great. I think what's really important is understanding the why. Why do they act the way they act? I think, like Chris said, like kind of understanding the context. What are they there for? What is their mission? What's their goal? If you understand that and you focus on helping them achieve that, I think it makes the relationship, whoever you're working with, that much easier. I've always been a proponent of, you know, if you do whatever you can to make your supervisor look good and you do everything you can to make your subordinates look good, things will work out for you. I've always, I guess I've managed relationships fairly well.
0: Thank you, Alex. This has been such a fun conversation, but also enlightening. And I think you've all dropped some wonderful gems that'll be useful to not only aspiring leaders, but those young Black leaders and organizations that are already in those leadership positions on their way to executive positions. Now on to the Dear Dr. A segment of the show. I thought it'd be cool to pick a story from someone who is trying to kind of climb up the so-called ladder in her organization. So here we go. Dear Dr. A... As a young black professional, I find it challenging to ask my managers for a raise. I'm qualified and have been completing additional tasks at my job. I always go over and beyond to make sure I am completing my duties as an employee. My question to you is, how do I start the conversation to ask for a raise? Straightforward question, but difficult.
3: Can I
2: go? Can I go? Can I go?
0: Is that Alex? Yeah. Yes, please.
2: <laughs> I am always a proponent of doing your homework. So what you need to do is document everything. So you need to one, document what you've been doing. Why is that more than what you're expected to be doing? You need to do research. What are people in similar positions in other organizations? How are they getting paid if they're doing the same type of work? You need to talk to your HR office and see what is the process for them to give you a raise. And you need to have all that paperwork already put into a briefing document for your supervisor So when you go there and you have that conversation, that discussion with them, all they have to do is if they agree with you, they sign the name of the paper and it's done. Because what you don't want to do is let them say, oh, well, yeah, let me think about it. Let me look into this. Because looking into this can turn into weeks, months, years. You want to have everything right there from the sign.
0: Alex, wonderful. Thank you for giving actionable
1: steps. That was awesome. Chris, you want to jump in? Alex killed it, man. Coming from a former HR professional, if somebody came into my office with that type of presentation, yeah, I'm probably going to have to go to comp and talk to them about giving that raise. I will just add one thing to the listeners, especially folks that are really going for the raise, just a couple of pitfalls. Don't go into the habit of bringing in what other people received, coworkers, other folks in different markets, just truly understand and do your research as far as why did you get offered, what you did get offered, why you're going after that raise, what does the market actually dictate? Comps of other companies is huge versus trying to compare yourself internally. Just don't fall into that trap. That would be the main thing I would add.
3: Awesome. And I think I'd echo pretty much the same thing that the two gentlemen just stated. Just go in with your facts. You know, you likely will have a mandate. Just bring that mandate in as well and take off your skills. You know, what are you bringing to the table? What are you bringing to the table above and beyond what the job mandate is asking for? And the comparative research with other industries as well will definitely go a long way. But you absolutely need to have your facts.
0: So you hear that, young lady? I hope you're out there listening. You just got a few very actionable direct steps that you can take so best of luck to you all right folks it's been all the way real i honestly don't know what i'm gonna do with you without you from here well with you or without you you're definitely a lively bunch alicia i'm coming to see you in canada so be on the lookout Alex, I have you. appreciate you as always chris it's been a pleasure my brother now it's goodbye
1: so your family say hi Mina appreciate it bye everyone have a wonderful wonderful day thank you great meeting you all